Raiders, start your engines! Welcome to the one place everybody wants to be. Victory Lane, your source for news, analysis, discussion, interviews, and more from the world of NASCAR. Here's your host, Davey Siegel. Welcome back, party people, to the place everybody wants to be. You know it, you love it. It, of course, is Victory Lane coming to you live from Las Vegas. Yes, I'm a couple weeks late. I know the race at Las Vegas Motor Speedway was at the start of this round of 12 for the NASCAR playoffs. But, hey, I got some family out here girlfriend and I are going out west to some national parks for a little bit have some family in Vegas figured we come out a little bit early see them hang out overlooking stadium swim right now at the Circa Hotel it's very cool you don't care about that you care about what's on the episode here today we got Santino Ferrucci as our guest as you can see from the title we're going to discuss his career in racing spanning go-karts being a child prodigy of sorts going over to Europe why he was not a fan of the culture and the racing out there. Blessing in disguise, coming back to America, getting involved with IndyCar, NASCAR now starting this season, the good, the bad, the ugly. We touch on all of it in our extended conversation. Plus, what does he like on his pizza? And does he actually live with his team owner? Stay tuned, you'll find out. Plus, we'll talk about the history-making weekend at Talladega Super Speedway. How about that? Bubba Wiles is a Cup Series winner. God, you love to hear it. Plus... Charlotte Motor Speedway, Roble. But before we do any of that, everybody strap in, get your popcorn ready, take a seat, grab some snacks, because this is going to be a long one. But, Dad, I gave you my word. I gave you some extended time, and you can have that again here today to pay homage to the number 28, as he explains, not my namesake, but an iconic figure in NASCAR history and one of my dad's all-time favorite drivers. Take it away. Thank you, Duve, and welcome everyone to episode 128, a special one for me, as we'll be remembering one of my favorite drivers, whose name is synonymous with the 28 car. 28 is one of those storied car numbers in NASCAR. It's been raced for more than a thousand times by some of the greatest names in the sport. Among those who raced and won in the 28 are Dan Gurney, Buddy Baker, Cale Yarbrough, Ernie Irvin, Ricky Rudd, and fast Freddie Lorenzen, who won 25 times in the 28, more than any other driver. I didn't realize until putting today's segment together that three of my all-time favorite NASCAR drivers are included in that category. We've talked about Dale Jarrett being one of my faves before. He won a race driving the 28. I've also mentioned in prior weeks that Bobby Allison is my all-time favorite NASCAR driver. He won five times driving the 28. So it should come as no surprise that following his career and almost life-ending crash at Pocono, that my allegiance would stay in the family and move over to his eldest son, Davey. 183 of Davey Allison's 191 cup starts came in the 28 car, that Texaco Haviland machine, for legendary car owner and engine builder Robert Yates. All 19 of his wins came in that ride, 
before he was taken from us too soon. Before then, though, he started from the ground up. I think it's a common misperception that sons of famous NASCAR drivers who choose to race have rides handed to them on a silver platter. Historically, that's not been the case. Think of Dale Jarrett, Kyle Petty, and Dale Earnhardt Jr., all sons of legendary champions. They got their start sweeping floors in their father's garages, then built their own short track cars, then worked their way up. Sure, their last names open doors, but you have to walk through the door and make the most of the opportunity. They all did, and Davey surely did. He was the 1987 Cup Series Rookie of the Year. He won the Daytona 500 in 1992 and famously finished second to his father in 1988. I think we previously talked about how Bobby's accident robbed him of the memory of that day. Davey also won the Coke 600, the Winston 500 at Talladega three times, and the All-Star Race twice. One of those included a wreck across the finish line with Kyle Petty in the first super speedway race ever run under the lights. Davey should have won the 1992 Winston Cup. He only needed to finish fifth or better to clinch it going into the final race, but he got caught up in a wreck and Alan Kowicki went on to win his championship that year. Ironic that we also lost him to an aviation accident. I was in Jerusalem in July 12, 1983, when word came that Davy had crashed his new helicopter while attempting to land in the infield at Talladega, where he and Red Farmer were going to watch Neil Bonnet's son test drive a car before his Bush Series debut. Initial reports, especially overseas for me, were unclear as to the severity of the crash, but then word came the following morning that while Farmer was fighting for his life and would eventually survive after a long recovery, Davy had never regained consciousness and was dead. His death hit me like a ton of bricks. I think it had a lot to do with Bobby's accident and the fact that his younger son, Clifford, was killed less than a year earlier during practice for the Bush race at Michigan. I remember touring Jerusalem's old city in a daze and sobbing like a baby in the shower. It proved too much for Bobby and his wife Judy as well. They split up in the wake of Davy's death, but thankfully found their way back to each other down the road. I recently referred to Tim Richmond as possibly the biggest what might have been figure of NASCAR I would have attributed that dubious honor to Davy if he hadn't already accomplished so much prior to his death. Despite the brevity of his career, Davy Allison was named one of NASCAR's 50 greatest drivers in 1998, and he was inducted into the NASCAR Hall of Fame in 2019. And a little closer to this podcast, I once again confirm that our host was not named after Davy Allison. I don't think Mama Siegel and I even named him after me, since my middle name is David. We just like David as a good, solid name, and once we laid eyes on him, 
we knew he was a Davy. That's all for this week, other than to add my congratulations to Bubba Wallace and his team for winning at Talladega last week. Further proof that good things happen to good people and those haters out there who've been chirping about it being a rain-shortened race or other more nefarious nonsense can go away and suck it. Back to you, Duve. Thank you, Dad. Yeah, I know everybody has those moments where they remember exactly where they were, what they were doing, whether it be, you know, world disasters, tragedies, personal things happening. And it seems like for Papa Siegel, Davey passing away was one of those moments. So so thank you for sharing that. And I agree with what you said there at the end about Bubba. Good things do happen to good people. So uh, without further ado, actually, Robin says that I've been saying that wrong. It's further ado, not or do. Anyways, without further ado... Happy Robin. Let's start off this episode as we always do with a good old-fashioned Let's get into it from Talladega Super Speedway. The historic weekend culminates in a rain-shortened victory for Daryl Bubba Wallace Jr., first for a black driver since 1963 in the Cup Series. Wendell Scott is smiling up there and having an incredible day for everybody involved from Bubba to Michael Jordan, Denny Hamlin, Freddie Kraft, Booty Barker. We're going to hear from a lot of the major players involved, but let's not waste any time. Let's hear from the man with the plan and the superstar that is Bubba Wallace after his first career Cup Series win. Again, the first for an African-American driver in the Cup Series since 1963. How about that? I'm selfish, and I'm just like, finally, I, I, I'm a winner again. It's been four years, Michigan truck race, um, and I'm a winner and I'm a winner at the cup level. So it's, uh, uh hell yeah, that's what I'm saying. But then you, you think about everything else that follows suit with the history being made. And, you know, there's a lot of firsts today within our team, within our organization. Um, and so this is really a huge team effort. I'm so proud of everybody, um, uh, for continuing to, to just stick with it. You know, it's been a lot of up and down races, a lot of frustration, a lot of shouting matches, but, you know, we always regroup and come back and rally. For, for when the green flag falls on Sunday or whether it's a Monday like today and we go out and compete and we put everything else aside and we know what we have to focus on. And, you know, we continue to build this organization up. Uh, I got Kurt coming over next year. You know, he's one of the drivers that came up uh, went during the rain delay there. And, you know, I appreciate him, his optimism, his wisdom, um, but we just got to keep going. I got to go, go out to the Roval, my best track, not, uh, next week, but just go out and have some fun. You know, um, this win didn't put us in the playoffs or anything, but you know, there was a huge weight lifted off my shoulders. I, if I'm, I told Claire earlier, if I'm taken out, you know, walking out of this room, Hey, I went out as a winner. So I'm good. A lot of things got kind of lost in the shuffle of being a rain shortened race and it ended early and the historical significance of Bubba winning a race, 2311 winning their first race, first win for Toyota besides a JGR car since furniture row, one of the main things I think that got lost is Booty Barker, his first win as a Cup Series crew chief in almost 500 starts. 500 starts, 20 years. Big day for one of the most beloved crew chiefs in the NASCAR garage, and he wasn't even a crew chief a month ago. He was working at the shop at 2311, but as he mentions, Denny called him up, said, why don't you come run the ship? He did, and now a couple races into his tenure with Bubba Wallace, he's a Cup Series winner. It's great. You know, when, when, uh, when Denny spoke to me, I was, um, I was excited. 
I told him, I mean, I, I'm, I'm a competitor. I've always been a competitor. And I knew the resources. I knew, I knew the team we had. And um, I knew the people we had. I know the resources we had. And I know the leadership that Denny provided. I, I knew what we were capable of. So I was really excited about getting, a, you know, another opportunity. But I, I didn't. I didn't plan on it this way. I just planned on doing a good job and whatever my role was. Um, it, take, it takes it takes more than – it takes a lot of things to win a race. It, it takes – and uh, it's a million ways to lose one and it's one way to win one, you know. So it's um, – I mean, I don't look at it – I did what I had to do to get this far. So I appreciate what Denny, you know, Denny giving me the shot. As I mentioned, first win for 2311 Racing in their first year of competition. First win for Denny Hamlin as a car owner. First win for Michael Jordan as a minority car owner as well. Just a historic day on multiple levels. And I found it interesting, but it makes kind of sense what Denny said about this win honestly meaning more to him than any win that he has had in recent memory because seeing what he's done behind the scenes, bringing this team from literally nothing to what it is now, it's like seeing one of your kids succeed. That's what, that's his words, not mine. So let's hear from Denny Hamlin, the race-winning car owner. It's kind of weird to say. Uh, I mean, emotions obviously uh, super high. I, I you know, I, I didn't uh, realize, you know, it'd be this high at this moment. But you know, I just I understand the process in which it takes to get to this point and winning in, in NASCAR's highest level. It just, you know, I'm I'm in every meeting. I'm hands on with the team. I I know how hard they work and, um, you know, it just, it's, I certainly am, am more emotional, more happy, you know, with someone else's victory than mine, uh, on this day. Before we get off Bubba Wallace, I mean, we got to touch on a few things. I mean, social media is a cesspool obviously, but I want to just go over a couple things for any potential haters and or racist people that are listening just to clear the air. And these are all facts. These are not opinion based. Bubba is not the first, and he will not be the only driver to win a race-shortened race, okay? So if you're saying that this was not a legit victory, are you going to say the same thing about Joey Logano at New Hampshire? Are you going to say the same thing for Richard Petty, Dale Earnhardt, countless other NASCAR Hall of Famers and beloved figures in the sport that have gotten rain-shortened victories? I didn't think so. It is a significant victory because NASCAR is a predominantly white sport. Having a black winner is a big deal. If you're one of those people that says, oh, well, I don't consider him a black driver. I just consider him a driver. You know, why do we have to make it a racial thing? Because NASCAR is not a black sport. It's a white sport. Like, sorry if I'm not being PC, but that's how it's historically been. That's how it's been for ever since NASCAR started. So the fact that we have a black driver in victory lane for the second time ever, first time since the early 60s, that is a big deal. And that's why people are still talking about it almost a week later and why people will be talking about it for years and years to come and why Bubba has been on all these national media, television, radio, podcast interviews because it is a big deal. It does transcend motorsports. It is bigger than NASCAR itself. So that's why he is everywhere and it is everywhere. NASCAR did not fix the race. If they fixed races... Don't you think Dale Earnhardt Jr. would have more than 25 or whatever amount of wins that he has in the Cup Series? Don't you think he would have been a multiple-time champion? What about Danica Patrick? You think she would have won a race or run a little better in her time with NASCAR? Yeah, exactly. If NASCAR wanted to fix races, A, I don't know if they could. B, 
They would have done a lot of different stuff in the past to make that happen. And why would they start now? They wouldn't because they could have done it for Dale Jr. They could have done it for Danica. And I can't believe I'm having to say this again. But no, NASCAR does not fix races. And the last thing, Bubba earned this win. You know why? There was 39 other competitors that could have put themselves and their cars in position to capitalize on runs coming from behind, pushing runs going ahead, with the rain coming in the area. 39 other competitors could have done what Bubba Wallace, Freddie Kraft, Booty Barker, and the 23 team did. Put their car in position to be scored the leader when the caution came out for a wreck, and then the rains came. But guess what? They didn't. So Bubba... He earned the win. Booty Barker with the strategy, he earned the win. 23-11 racing, they are legitimate race winners. This is not a tainted win. Sure, you can put an asterisk on it, but if you want to put an asterisk on this one, you got to put it on all the other rain-shortened victories that have happened in NASCAR history. And something tells me it's more than just this one, okay? Finn, racist will be racist. My dad said good things happen to good people. I agree with that. I've talked to Bubba a few times. I'm not going to stand up here and say I have a really good friendship, close relationship with him because I don't. But this is a really cool story, and he's a really cool guy. I hope that this will be the first of many future drivers of color, whether it be Raja Karuth coming through the ranks, LeVar Scott as well with Rev Racing, or other diversity candidates that come through the ranks, whether that be Haley Deegan, whether that be Regina Servent, who just won an award with the NASCAR Diversity Awards Ceremony this year. This is only the beginning, I hope, and I think that I can speak on behalf of everybody when I say parity is a good thing, and Bubba, regardless of all the racial components that come into this, why it transcends motorsports, et cetera, et cetera, this creates more parity. It's a new winner. That's fun. I like new winners, and I'm glad we got one. Let's talk Xfinity, and let's talk trucks briefly before we talk to Santino Ferrucci this week. How about Brandon Brown? Thanks to Darkness, he wins his first career Xfinity Series race. An emotional victory for many reasons. His first career win, underfunded team, almost closed the doors earlier this year, father battling cancer by Brandon's side throughout it all, from racing as a young kid in Virginia, all the way up now to being a winner at Talladega. And just like Bubba, even though this was shortened due to Darkness, he still earned it, put himself in position to be scored the leader when a wreck happened and NASCAR deemed that it was too dark con to continue. So he's doing it for the DMV, baby. Woodbridge, Virginia's own Brandon Brown can now call himself an Xfinity Series winner. It's just been surreal. It's really hard to capture just one single emotion, happiness, relief, joy, excitement, just the feeling of fulfillment, like... It's just something that dad and I have been working on since I was nine years old and, you know, really building to it. And we knew that the super speedways were our best chance as a smaller team where the playing field's fairly even. So we uh, just had to work on bringing a car as fast as that Xfinity internet. And I feel like that was the ticket to getting to victory lane, you know, Doug Randolph and the whole team, they just, they put together such a great piece. Uh, thank you so much to Larry's lemonade for allowing us the opportunity, but uh you know, the pit stops were just on point. This entire Brandonville Motorsports team was just phenomenal all weekend. So uh, just so thankful, I guess, would be the, the biggest one. Shameless plug to after you finish listening to this episode of Victory Lane, go check out my interview on the Front Stretch podcast this week with Brandon Brown. It was a great chat with him. Appreciate his time. So check that out after this. And down to the truck series where Tate Fogelman 
Who? I don't think I've ever said his name on this show, but Tate Fogelman for Young's Motorsports again. How about Tyler Young and the gang winning once again at Talladega? Tate Fogelman's a NASCAR Truck Series winner. Incredible finish. Ridiculous story that Young's Motorsports does it again. And Tate wins for the first time. That late move coming through the trioval on John Hunter Nemechek. Did he wreck him on purpose? Did John Hunter come down? Was it fair game? Last lap coming to the checkers, super speedway. I lean towards it's pretty fair game. John Hunter probably would have a differing opinion. I think Tate would probably share mine. Let's hear from him on how it feels to be a winner in those closing stages. And by the way, Tyler Hill finished second as he wrecks across the line with Tate Fogelman. Two underfunded teams, underfunded trucks, underfunded drivers, underdogs doing the thing at Talladega. God, I love it. Yeah, so I had never finished a super speedway race before. So before we had tried like laying back and kind of having like a second draft going on behind the main pack and that obviously didn't work out uh, in the past. So we weren't really sure what our game plan was going in. We were just going to try to stay towards the front, take the positions we were given and just work our way forward. And then here, the biggest thing was just avoiding wrecks. So once we got through that first big wreck and I knew we would have a shot at it. And uh, then there, the few laps after that, we got through that other wreck and things were kind of, feeling like they were headed in the right direction. Finally had a little bit of luck on our side, which we haven't had much of this year. But uh, so we got through those wrecks and had a good feeling. So we just started working our way forward. And uh, there at the end, we lined up third on the inside. And I knew that was going to be my shot uh, to win the race if I could suck up and push the guy in front of me. But my truck had damage from that first big wreck on both sides of the nose. So it wouldn't suck up to the truck in front of me the best. So. I got a good push out back and that's really what helped me get up to the trucks in front of me and uh, gave them a push and slid across the finish line and was able to get the win. And again, in case you live under a rock, this is the first time in NASCAR history, history, that in the same weekend at the same track, there's been three different first time winners. Never has happened in NASCAR history before. So congrats to you, Tate Fogelman. Congrats to you, DMV Zone Brandon Brown. And congrats to you, Trailblazer Bubba Wallace, making history at Talladega this year. This past weekend was a doozy, wasn't it? Wow. Before we throw it over to our chat with Santino Ferrucci, got to give a shout-out to Rhino Classifieds. As always, they came on a scene recently with the bang. They gave away Vaughn Gittin Jr.'s drift truck. And if you didn't know, Rhino was created by the founder of Racing Junk, because he wanted to create a more streamlined buying and selling app that allowed users to see what they wanted rather than all those ads and the crap that gets in the way. So head on over to rhino.co, sign up for a free account. You can find whatever it is you're looking for, or you can post yours. Rhino.co, classified for racers, built by racers. Interview time. Let's chat with Santino Ferrucci of Sam Hunt Racing in the NASCAR Xfinity Series. Also, has raced an IndyCar for Ray Hall Letterman Lanigan Racing. It's kind of tough to say. Finishing the top 10 in the Indianapolis 500, not once, but twice. Has raced uh, over in Europe for countless years. Was a part of the Haas F1 team. He's going to explain his career arc, the incredible journey, the highs, the lows, the trials, the tribulations, good, bad, and ugly. Everything about his journey to get to where he is right now. You guys may have a perception of Santino seeing from the outside and hearing all these stories and the child prodigy and 
why he got kicked out of F3 and why he left Europe. I think he lends a different perspective and some fresh perspective on him as a person and kind of how he's changed a little bit. You can tell that he's matured in this conversation. So without further ado, here's my chat with Sam Hunt Racing's Santino Ferrucci. Pleasure to welcome on to the show today, Connecticut's finest. No, not Italy's. And Sam Hunt Racing in the Xfinity Series driver, the 26 Toyota Supra, Santino Ferrucci. You guys know him from the IndyCar world coming over to NASCAR this year. One of the most interesting men in motorsports. You know those commercials, Santino, like the most interesting man in the world, Dos Equis? I feel like you need to have that moniker for motorsports. I do know those commercials. Unfortunately, <laughs> I do not drink Dos Equis. But yes, it would be definitely, uh, if you look at my career, definitely an interesting one. Yes, yes, it would be. And we're going to talk about all of that here today in our chat. So thank you for joining me. I will say, I don't know if I've done many podcast interviews, like long-form interviews like I do, before 10 a.m. in the morning, but you guys are busy over there at Sam Hunt Racing, so Trish is like, hey, 9 a.m., you in? I'm like, yeah, let's do it. So you got me up early. Congratulations. Yeah, dude, no kidding. I got a long day myself here because I got to go through some Speedway 101. It's actually, uh, mm -hmm. I have the race paused on the on the big screen over oh, here. Oh, really? Yeah. Just unpause it. Let's watch some film together. No, oh, no kidding, right? I'm a, I got my spotter coming in, uh, Chris Lambert, and yeah. we're going to go over a bunch of things and you know, try and teach me the ins and outs because I guess it's just completely different racing than anything I've ever done. So, uh, And it looks it. So I'm, I'm excited. Yeah. Though. It is. Well, when Chris comes in, tell him I say hello because actually, funny enough, he is on this podcast this week that we're recording, actually, and he was on last week. So we had an awesome conversation. He spoke very highly of you, so please tell him I say hello. Yeah, will do. Cool. All right, man. Well, let's start off. I want to talk about the season as a whole overall, which is 2021, your first foray into stock car racing on the NASCAR side of things. It has to have been a big adjustment from what you've been used to your entire career, which is open wheel cars, uh, go-karting, all that sort of stuff, to what you're doing now, which is heavy-ass, full-bodied stock cars. On Super Speedways, you're making your debut at Talladega this upcoming weekend. You've run at Homestead, Atlanta, some other uh, mile and a half as well. Big adjustment period this year. Overall, I know that you still got some racing left to do this year. How do you think everything has gone? Man, it's definitely been an interesting year, especially on the stock car side of things. You know, it's it's hard to tell people that like, yeah, I'm a racer, but I haven't turned a single practice lap in this car yet. Right. <laughs> all I've done is race it. So I have, I've never qualified it, which is kind of another bizarre thing. And then, you know, announcing that we're running Talladega this weekend is uh, another form of racing. Everyone's like, Oh, you're going to be able to get some practice and qualify the car. I'm like, oh, no, no, just green flag. Let's Cold go. Turkey. <laughs> yeah. Just uh, so it's been, it's been unique. I've definitely enjoyed a couple more tracks than I would say others. Uh, yeah. My favorite track I think I've done so far to date was definitely Homestead. Shocking. Uh, <laughs> yeah, followed, followed, followed by Vegas. Um, I mean, I don't know. There's just running around Homestead. I, I still kind of kicked myself. It was my first race. Mm -hmm. And I unfortunately put the car in the wall trying to run the wall. You're not the only tire. one. Though. Yeah, I know. We cut a tire and went two laps back. But our car was just so quick. And, you know, we really could have been in the top 10 in our first race, which would have been uh, awesome. nothing short of a miracle. But um, <laughs> no, it just it's just such a steep learning curve. I mean, it's so difficult to drive these things. Uh, it's just so much patience. Like you said, it's heavy. I've never raced uh, something this heavy with this much power. Um, 
and it's just unique. So I'd say the year has gone really well uh, for the stock car racing. You know, it's it's definitely something that I really enjoy doing. It's something that I want to continue to do. Um, obviously, I'm here in Charlotte, so you never know. Might hopefully be a little bit more next year. Are you living there full time now, by the way? No, I just spend a lot of time here in Sam's apartment. Yeah. <laughs> he's finally <laughs> got a guest in bedroom. Sam's apartment? Yeah, yeah. He's, he's finally got a guest bedroom. I guess he's tired wow. of me sleeping. Well, on now that he's a married man, he can afford such things. No kidding, right? Yeah. He was, I guess, uh, I was talking to his wife this morning and Sam was complaining that the apartment looks like a female designed it. I was like, dude, no, 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 no. That just means people live there. Because <laughs> as a dude, we have this perception when we move places, we don't put anything up. We have the uh-huh. bare essentials. It looks like serial killers live in there. Yep. The female makes it look homey. Yeah. So it's, it's nice. It's nice and warming. I got a nice bed. I got four pillows, a yep. little night lamp, some wall art. It's great. It's very nice. How is, uh, how's your team owner as a roommate? That has to be an interesting dynamic when you're coming down to Charlotte. It's definitely funny. So, <laughs> I mean, I think Sam is a little bit of a different roommate than maybe Bobby Rahal. A little bit. <laughs> In this sense. So, but, uh, no, it's, it's really fun. Uh, having Sam, you know, as such a young team owner and being relatable and stuff like that. Cause like yeah. I kind of understand, uh, and he understands, you know, what we're both trying to do. So it's really cool. And we get along really well. Um, before we get into the chronological order of kind of how your career has went all the way down from go-karting to, to European racing, to IndyCar to now, let's just get this out the way first. How often do people think that you're from Italy and not Connecticut? I feel like it has to be an everyday occurrence. It's, it's definitely more, uh, it's going away. Finally. That's good. Finally. I kid you not the first couple of years or the first two years I was back from Europe. Everyone's like, well, where in Italy are you from? I'm like, yeah, yeah no, um, Connecticut. <laughs> like Woodbury. Yeah. Connecticut. Yeah. I mean, I'm from the Italian part of Connecticut, uh-huh. essentially like a little bit. I'm just kind of like, ah, but like I eat pizza every time all, all weekend long, but, uh, yeah. No, it's, it's definitely starting to go away, which I think is kind of nice. I think people are starting to realize that I am Connecticut. Uh, obviously, the car is not helping me much this weekend. We have Screaming Sicilian. Yeah. <laughs> Eat my crust, it says on the bumper. I love it. Uh-huh. I love this car. Honestly, this thing came out so cool. great. And I think Hy-Vee and uh, Palermo's Pizza did a great job. So, I mean, it kind of screams me, if that makes sense. <laughs> like, I feel like it has my heritage, and it's my favorite colors. It's red and white. Yep. So um, I'm, I'm pretty thrilled with that. What kind of pizza do you like, or what kind of toppings do you like on your pizza? Are you just a plain margarita guy? You like pepperoni? What are you feeling? I have to laugh. So when I went and visited Palermo's, like I've not, I've never been a frozen pizza person just because I always grew up with fresh pizzas. They actually make a pizza, Screaming Sicilian Supreme, which is everything I get on a pizza, which is uh, peppers, onions, and pepperoni. Okay. cheese like that, that's my pizza and they I like literally those too. Make they make that in the store <laughs> dude when i moved from florida to i moved to dallas just recently i was living off of those pizzas because we didn't have like anything to cook with for for two weeks Man. so it, it was a lifesaver for sure did you have to like convince your parents who I'm sure probably like you can never have a frozen pizza okay you grew up in Connecticut you got an Italian last name you need to have fresh margarita pizzas okay you can't have this frozen shit no kidding right and i'm like i'm trying to explain to to my dad i was like this is like you gotta just try one just try one yeah 
Because it's now good he's if got you're giving a chance. And he makes them all the time. I'm like, dude, they're they're amazing. Okay, like, Sponsorship works. I know. Well, I went out to the factory and I got to tour the facility. I've toured a lot of facilities. I've never toured one that makes food. Mm-hmm. It's completely different. Yeah. I mean, it is freezing in there. So, but uh, I, I definitely enjoyed it. And the food's phenomenal. So for everybody out there that's watching this podcast, go pick up a Flermo's pizza and support us this weekend. That's right. Sponsor activation work. You said you moved to Dallas. When did that happen and why'd you make the move? So I moved to Dallas, uh, middle of August. So not exactly great timing. I went from Florida to Dallas. So one hot state to another hotter state. You're sweating. Um, more so because my girlfriend and her work. So she, she works out there in the banking industry. And for me, I mean, as long as the the state has no uh, personal income tax. (laughs) Cool with me. I'm happy. (laughs) So, potato, potato, Florida, yeah. Texas. You know, you just don't got the beach. But you're you liking a, it though so far. I do. To be honest with you, I've been really liking Dallas. I wasn't sure how I'd like living in a city because uh, I grew up in the woods. Yeah. And uh, to be honest, it's it's been fantastic. Cool. Cool. It's good to hear. All right, let's get back to racing a little bit here. Let's try to stay on the straight and narrow. Um, what got you into racing in the first place? And and when and why did you take a liking to it? I assume that your dad had something to do with it. But take me into the intricate details of it. What drew you to motorsports? I mean, yeah, I mean, like most kids, when you're four or five, you just really have no idea what's going on. And I think uh, for my birthday, my dad took me out to a go-kart track in upstate New York um, as like a little gift. And to be honest, I just, I, I really loved it straight out of the gate. Like I wasn't one of those timid kids that had to learn how to go fast. Yeah. Um, I was pedal on the floor trying to take the track as fast as I possibly could. Full loved send, every, day one. Loved every sense of speed, uh, couldn't, and then couldn't get enough. And then, uh, you know, from there, we were actually just really good on day one. And he just figured, uh, you know, he, he was done with a couple of businesses in Connecticut and actually ended up buying that, that go-kart track as his own yeah. business. Cause that for, was like uh, the only one that was kind of close to you guys. Right. Yeah, so we ended up owning it for uh, a handful of years as a business, as a corporate business, because um, the normal side of the racing business, as everybody knows, there's no money in it. Yep. <laughs> so it's all about the corporate stuff. So that's what he did uh, for work, and then which obviously allowed me to race every weekend, get lots of seat time, uh, enjoy go karting, and then eventually we went and started to travel together uh, around the country. I won numerous championships in go karts um at a very young age actually i ended up almost i I, it's weird i kind of got kicked out of the class because i was too young so i'd won the cadets championship back-to-back years uh they put me in juniors i won the first race and they said oh now you're too young to be in juniors but since you raced you can't go back so we're just like all right well let's go to europe and so i ended up actually going (laughs) to europe uh, and racing there. My very first race, I'll never forget. I uh, was at a track called PF International. And I think I qualified dead last five seconds off the pace Man. because I had to go from driving like a junior, you know, high horsepower go kart to a kid kart again. And the it just the learning curve was so drastic and with limited practice and everything. And I ended up spending multiple years in Europe. Uh, I I mean, my class of kids that I grew up with in Europe was about half of that F1 grid right now. Really? So, 
Yeah, it was definitely, you know, <laughs> I mean, you had Albon, Verstappen, Norris, Russell, wow. Leclerc. No but, wonder why you were dead last. <laughs> yeah, first weekend. Yeah, no, and I ended up uh, winning a race over there. I was ranked uh, in the top five for the longest time, uh, you know, just with all those kids in, in Europe. Uh, and then I made my transition into, uh, I had like an off year because I was too young for cars and I didn't want to move up into the next class in go-karts. Uh, so like I had like a, a weird year off for to start my car transition back in America where I started out with Formula Ford. And now it's kind of funny because like most kids today have no idea what Formula Ford is because it's like a class from the 90s. Yeah, 80s, it's a throwback. Yeah, I mean, like, honestly, this class has been around about as long as racing has because it's a four-speed gearbox with a little, like, 100 horsepower, if that, Ford motor. Yeah. And the racing's bumper to bumper, wheel to wheel. And that's kind of how I – that was my introduction into cars. So uh, I, I loved it because, you know, a lot of people today, a lot of race car drivers today don't know how to drive a stick unless you drive in the NASCAR side. Because <laughs> cars are still four speed age. Uh, but most people on my side and formula cars that are young my age have no idea how to drive a stick shift. Yeah. And it, it blows my mind how many, you know, I was like, how can you love cars, be a race car driver, not know how to drive an H or not have, know how to do a heel toe downshift? So you're just kind of like, you know, it's a lost art. Yeah. Rudimentary so, skills. You think that people would know these things? I mean, I was shocked. Nobody in Europe knows how to do that. It blows It's just my different mind. over there. Yeah. I mean, the amount of drivers that have never driven an H pattern is incredible. Yeah. So that or doesn't come natural. My mom had to teach me at like 11. That's badass. Yeah. So I, I actually got in trouble because I was getting, my mom taught me in England how to teach a, how to drive a stick in a Ford car, which is uh, like a little Volkswagen Beetle. And I was driving it on some farmland, trying to learn how to drive a stick. And the uh -huh. farmer came out and kind of chased us off the property. Ooh. It was a little sketchy, <laughs> especially since I was learning how to drive a stick. Yeah. So yeah. I was like, don't stall, don't stall, don't stall. <laughs> but no, it, it was it was definitely fun. Um, and uh, yeah, then that kind of kicked off my car career. And I went back to Europe, uh, raced in Formula 3. Uh, I did Formula 3 over in New, New Zealand as well. Mm -hmm. uh, then into GP3, uh, where I was also a test driver for Haas for three years. Yep. Uh, into F2. And then I got a jump start into IndyCar, which is really awesome. Yeah. So, uh, and I was happy. I was really happy to come back to America. So after after about eight years of European racing and politics and everything, you just... I don't know. I was really much about over the fact of yeah. you know, they want you to run the Italian flag. They want nothing to do with the American flag. And, you know, I was kind of over the abuse of that. So uh, I was really happy to get the opportunity I did to race back in America. And uh, yeah, so I took it, spent two and a half years in IndyCar. And, you know, I had an interesting off off season uh, in nine and 20 going into 21 and uh, wasn't quite sure what I was going to do. Um, and I was trying to move up into IndyCar into a, a better team situation. Um, obviously, things didn't exactly play out the way that I had hoped, but uh, kind of for the better, if that makes sense. Yeah. So, brought you I, here. I, huh? Yeah. Oh, yeah. 
So trust me, I'm very happy that I, I got the chance to go down the stock car route. Yeah. Uh, especially with Sam, like of all the teams, I think I, you know, I could have done it with, uh, I feel like I definitely picked the right home, yeah. uh, the right place to start with Sam and Toyota. Uh, you know, and it's grown into something uh, a lot more than the initial uh, four or five races that we had. Well, so. good for you. You just went through my entire outline of this entire podcast, doing your entire career in about five minutes. So we're done here. No, I'm kidding. Uh, but like I said, I mean, that kind of proves what I said. You are one of the most interesting case studies in motorsports. You have been all over the world, literally. You have raced so many different things. You've had so many different life experiences. So I just, I want to get into all of that with you. So you're 23 now, right? 23 years old? I am. Okay. So let's go back 11 years, about a decade, because I think when you were, or no, maybe it was nine years, 14 years old, 2012, you became the North American karting champion. Is that right? Yep. What do you remember about those days? Because I feel like that had to be one of the first times that you kind of hit the peak, so to speak. Yeah. So I got to laugh. That race in particular was a big race. It was 80, 80 plus competitors in our class, wow. I'd want to say. So a lot, you know, for whatever reason, it was a really big year. Um, me and my dad actually wanted to show up. Uh, we were importing energy go-karts because that's what I was running in Europe. And I hadn't raced in America for in a go-kart in probably a good three years. So a little different, uh, I'd say. Tires are different. Everything, you know, the competition's different. The mentality yep. is a little different. And, you know, me and my dad were kind of like, uh, we wanted to just rent a spot in the the big energy team that was in the states um and they were like yeah we're, we'll, we're gonna charge you an astronomical amount of money and my, me and my dad just kind of like all right let's load up the pickup and a pop-up <laughs> and i kid you not pick up pop-up tent one set of new tires one set of new rain tires and a spare motor just in case that's old school and we drove out and we we that's how we did it we and it was actually to the point where it was we were running the weekend and someone actually bought me an extra set of tires because there was so much like running and practice that I didn't have to run the weekend on one set of oh, yeah. tires <laughs> and it was kind of cool because I, I qualified on the pole in the rain um on a drying track uh I actually stopped about 10 minutes before the session was over because I think at the point where I stopped I was over five and a half seconds up on second and, and I was like, I'd spent so much time in England and all they do is race in the rain. Yep. So I just learned and learned and learned and learned and got my ass kicked. Try so by fire. Back, yeah. So I came back to the States where, you know, it just doesn't rain as much, obviously, like yeah. it does in England. I swear it rains every day in England. It does. Um, I was ready. I knew how to set the go-kart up how I wanted. Uh went out i ended up qualifying on pole by like two seconds or something and i i won every heat race uh i think i lapped the field in the pre-final all but second and third place damn in the rain yeah and then in the final i'll always remember the final because i'll i'll never forget it. i had about a 20 second lead at one point and the clutch blew up uh -oh. in the motor from the rain wear and tear yeah. and with a rotax you know you get you can easily get disqualified for uh greasing the clutch because mm -hmm. it helps to slip off the bottom and we were so like afraid 
to pull the motor apart or to put anything in there from all the rain and the heat that it dried so badly that it just all the, it crumbled inside the, the flywheel. Wow. And the clutch actually exploded, but my dad had the nut so tight on the, the front gear that it stayed on. And when we, when we finished the race, I only ended up winning by like seven or eight seconds. Cause yeah. like at that point I was trying to make, cause I felt it break at the end Sound of the straight at home. Yeah. I, I felt it break cause they had the rear tires lock and I lost it. And I was kind of like, and then it free spun and fired itself back up. And I was kind of like, this is an issue. <laughs> so I just, I kind of really backed off of pushing on the motor and, you know, I watched, you know, made sure everything was fine as a kid. And when we finished the race, you know, we made weight and, uh, the head of tech was a good friend of mine. He's probably the most fair person I've ever met. His name's Don Moormeister. And, um, he actually, cause it was just me and my dad, when they did the tech, he had to help my dad pull the motor apart. Cause my dad had no idea Ooh. like what he needed to do to tech the motor. And so Don's over here pulling the motor apart and he, they finally get the nut off the front gear. And normally you need to use like a pry bar to pull off the flywheel and the clutch and everything just came off in pieces. And I remember my dad said, Don looked at him and said, you better say some phrases right now. Cause there's no way you should have finished that race. Yeah. You should have been sitting on the sidelines halfway through when that thing snapped. So yes. To get that win, have that trophy, stand on the podium. Actually, the podium picture is hilarious. I think I was on the podium with Oliver Askew and one other kid. And they're taller than me on the podium. And I'm standing on like a foot taller box. Yeah. Which is funny. I mean, to me, I, I was yeah, always good for you. Yeah, I was always short. There is a there's a photo of my first junior win in Florida Winter Tour with Austin Self on the podium as well and uh one other kid and they're still about four inches taller than me <laughs> i was like 10 or 11 at the time yeah so there, there's some good there's some good podium pictures out there because i'm i'm five foot nothing i'm short like a typical yeah. italian kid no one in my family has height so uh obviously i got my hair and that's about it yeah yeah those are some cool memories though i love hearing about you know the days of the go-karting and it seems like for you, I mean, it was obviously super competitive, but for most NASCAR drivers, that was kind of when it was in its purest form, so to speak. And, you know, they were doing it, whether it was with their dad or their parents, whatever. Um, and it was just kind of one of those things where it was so fun and, and there wasn't a, a ton of high stakes, but that wasn't really the case for you, which I think is interesting. So then you win that and then you get propelled. And at this point you were already kind of on an open wheel track. And I know Michael Schumacher was, your biggest idol. You wanted to be like him. You were on the Formula One path. We'll get to Haas, as you mentioned. So after those years, you know, you're having more success on those ranks. You move up um, into racing in Europe and Germany and England. Uh, I'm not so super well educated on how the ladder system works and how things go on the open wheel and the formula side of things, especially in Europe. But I'm educated enough to understand that you kept moving up because you had success at each level that you went. And yeah. I found it interesting what you mentioned earlier, too, about how you kind of got burnt out with the European culture and the politics associated with racing and everything like that. But at this point, right, when you're moving up the ranks and, and you're in F3, you're in F2, you're racing all over Europe, you're having success, you're doing well. 
what, what were the feelings like for you then? Because at that point, yes, you're still young. Yes, you're still driven and you want to accomplish your ultimate goal of making it to F1, becoming a world champion at that point. But you still are having a, a ton of success. You're beating some of the best in the world. And you are literally, at that point, living out your dream. Were, were you too young to kind of realize that that was happening? Or did you understand the gravity of it in the moment? No, you understand. I think, you know, growing up quick is something that's important, especially in Europe. Um, it's just tough because, like, it's hard to really uproot your life here and then fully live in Europe, which yeah. is, like, something you truly have to commit to. And, you know, I really didn't want to give up living here. So I kept flying back and forth. And I think that was a big Achilles heel for me was I still wanted, you know, I was living there and I had an apartment there, but I didn't want to like be there. Like I loved living in Italy and I loved being apart, but like you just have no family, you know, you have very few friends. So it's just a very lonely life. And versus here, it's a big family. So, you know, it just, after, after a while, like it just, it gets old, you know? So, and for me, you know, it got, it got old after a long time and I did it as long as I could. Um, I was very thankful for Haas, uh, which was very unique for me. It was a very tie back uh, to the U S yeah, it was a very unique, uh, situation to be in that program, uh, to drive a formula one car, uh, was also really cool. So like I've driven the Indy car, the F1 car, now a stock car, I've driven so dirt cool. midgets, go-karts. Yeah. Uh, I mean like. You name it, I've 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 basically driven it now. Most interesting point. man in motorsports, I'm telling you. Yeah, so there's there's not a lot of people that have done everything, you know. And I think you know I find that really cool. I really enjoy that. Yeah. Um, I will say the coolest car I've ever driven in Europe, thanks to my experiences, is that F1 car. Uh, it will forever be something special that I cherish. Yeah. Uh, it's definitely the fastest piece of equipment. <laughs> I've ever been in, uh, bar none. It may not have had the top speed of the Indy car around Indianapolis on qualifying day at 240 something, but to be able to go like 220 to zero in 150 feet with like five and a half G is that that's a little insane. I mean, like I remember, I remember my first test, man. I mean, I trained my neck so much. My neck was huge. Like my neck's tiny now. Cause like, Looking like Ryan Newman. Nuts. Yeah. Go figure. My neck is huge. And like, like every F1 driver, when you look at them, you see like a head, like a little head and like a neck, like a veiny neck. And that's, that's it because there's power steering. The brakes are easy. The throttle's easy. Like there's no physical. That's why all the guys complain about the weight because they, there, there's nothing to them. The only muscles that they need are in their neck. That's the only thing that they care about. It's the only thing that they need to have and it's just not, it's not hard to drive those cars. I mean, you sit there and drive them all day long. It's like being on a simulator, just someone's tugging your neck at the force of a fighter pilot. Which makes so, it a little bit harder. Yeah. Cause the problem though, is if you can't hold your head up, you can't see. Yeah, so that's a problem. I was zip tying my Hans device to my helmet. So essentially when I hit the brakes, my head wouldn't hit my chest. Damn. That, that was, I, I was okay with the lateral. The lateral wasn't the issue because I was trained and I was really ready for the lateral. And I thought I was really ready for the, for the braking, but I mean, it's incredible. It was so much more than I had ever thought. Did that the zip ties work? Did they hold up? They, I'd replace them every session because they'd snap. 
Yeah. It's not about after eight laps. It, it's just, in, it's insane. I did one session before I was like, I, and I had two days. I did my first run and I was like, uh oh. I was like, uh, this ain't good. <laughs> so, but no, it was, it was really fun. Good. So you mentioned those were the days as you were a test driver for Haas F1. And, you know, thinking from a broad picture, right? You were a test driver for a Formula One team. And now a few years later, you're in NASCAR. The, the journey to get to where you were at that point, to where you are now, had a lot of trials and tribulations, a lot of twists, a lot of turns. But going back to your childhood dream, Formula One world champion, how did it feel to get the call and then to actually drive that car, as you were mentioning, to think to yourself, like, I'm driving an F1 car right now. I am a test driver for an F1 team right now. That had to be an incredible feeling for you and also your family who had sacrificed so much. Yeah, I mean, it's like you can almost taste the the end of the rainbow over there. Yeah, for real. So, I mean, it's it's definitely something that's unique. And once you're driving the car, you know, and being inside that team consistently, I think you kind of get a little caught up on the emotions of like, you're almost there, you're almost there. Yeah. But there's just so much more that you learn that goes on behind the scenes that can really put you in that car full time. And, you know, by the time I came to that realization was when I started to be a little bit more realistic and I was like, well, I can go to IndyCar, you know, and not have to worry about it and worry about a big name coming in to, to take that ride and mm -hmm. out from underneath you. And, you know, you don't have to deal with sitting because you have a lot of drivers over there that literally go to the races every weekend that were great talents that just sit there in the pits and just hope and pray. Yeah. And to be honest with you, my hoping and praying days are done. <laughs> I, I like to work for things. Yeah. So I was like, I'd rather come back and hustle and work with sponsors and, you know, actually be racing a car than sitting in the pit box with a red red or with a headset on and being like, all right, I, maybe, maybe I'll get my chance here. Maybe I'll get yeah. my chance here. I got you. And to be honest with you, that's almost how I got my chance in IndyCar was because Pietro ended up getting hurt and mm -hmm. I got a call to go do that. And I was like, I'll fill in for him in Detroit. Um, you know, we grew up together. I've known him for a very long time. And since I was there, I did really well. And that's that's how I got my start. That's how a lot of drivers get their break. Yeah. You know, they get they right just place, get a, right time. Yeah, they get a random opportunity to go drive a car uh in something that, you know, is new to them and they do pretty well and you know they want to have you come back so that's how that's how i got my break i got started and ended up doing a couple more races in 18 and full two full-time seasons in 19 and 20. before we get into the indycar stuff a little bit deeper i wouldn't be doing my job if i didn't bring up the controversy that you were involved in because obviously i have to be the bearer of bad news here santino um but for those that don't know right so when you're in f2 with trident um there see like again with european stuff I, I'm naive and I lack some of the details here, but to make a long story short, and if you're interested, you know, you can read the stuff and obviously we're going to get your perspective on it and everything. You were accused of wrecking your teammate. You missed a meeting. Um, then things happened. Trident ended up releasing you some sponsorship issues. I'm sure that that time had to be very hard for you, hard for your family. And I'm sure looking back on it now, as you've said in some prior interviews, you regret some of the things that you did and some of the things that you said. Everything from every side could have been handled better and differently. That's for sure. Your side, their side, everything in between. But that time period for you, just 
if I get your thoughts on that. And I want to have you speak on it, obviously, because that's something that a lot of people from the outside, they see that and they have a perception of you. And talking to you now, I see that that perception is completely inaccurate for the most part. You know what I mean? So can I just get your perspective on that time and kind of what the feelings were like going on in your life and your career? Yeah, man. I mean, that's years ago. Uh, you know, I, 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 when that first happened, you know, and I came back and the kind of first interview I did was actually with Marshall Pruitt kind of explained what went on. Cause it was a very emotional time for me, yeah. uh, there. I, I just, I just lost an uncle and, you know, my family, we, we were really struggling with that. And, you know, it was, it was tough. And I think Europe was starting to get the better of me and, uh, you know, it was a tough time emotionally. Um, I, now that I look at it, you know, it's obviously people make mistakes. People aren't perfect. I'd say that's probably the biggest mistake I've made in my career. Uh, probably one of the very few. Um, but I love the fact that people are like, you know, I just love, love, love when I see people, you tried to kill this person and run them over because I, I laugh. Cause if you go and watch the video, and you kind of see what I was trying to do. I, I was going to go flip him off. And I just decided against it. And I turned and he was drifting. He was drifting a bit to the right. And I went to turn and go around him left. And I kid you not, an inch of that front wing clipped his rear tire. And that was it. And it's, oh, you tried to do this. Or you tried to do that. And I'm like, you know, if people still want to hold up on the, you did this and you did that and you're yeah. this person and you're that person. I mean, that's, that's good for them because I mean, most of those people that say that stuff have one never driven a race car, maybe been to a race. And, you know, I just chalk it up to the fact that they're just jealous and they need someone to hate. I mean, I ended up using that momentum in IndyCar and it got me a lot of, uh, got me a lot of press. You know, I drove, I didn't change how I drove. I drove aggressive. I was myself, uh, as much as I love the fact that people say I wreck cars all the time. I did my first season and I only, uh, missed the quarter of the final race in my first season, IndyCar. Mm -hmm. It was it. I completed every other lap. So no contact, no nothing. Uh, 18, we had a couple more issues, but not necessarily related with me wrecking anything, just. Right. more pit issues and and then you look at this year and actually to be honest with you this year was the toughest year for me in indycar because i actually did end up crashing two cars and uh both due to driver error so which is a shame because one you know the big one was an indy uh in in practice i broke my leg um because i hit the wall at about 220 backwards mm -hmm. which is never fun but i'm sure <laughs> we'll recommend. touch on that yeah. And then the other one was Detroit and, you know, it was just really freak, but no, going back to that incident, you know, um, yeah, I, I think, you know, it's something I'll always regret something that I always carry, uh, to be honest with you, most of that hates in Europe and, uh, you know, they can live with it and they can hate me for it. Cause there's, you know, everybody's so, um, what's the correct word for it. Everybody's so boring there. I mean, I think oh, that's, so. that's what I'm going to say. I mean, everybody follows a code. Everybody follows rules. You know, you have all these social media rules. You have all these platform rules. You have all these things that you can't post about. They I make gotcha. you sign contracts 
that you can't have a life, you can't have a personality, you know, and you can't do anything outside the norm. Look at Paul Tracy. I mean, this is, this guy is like my damn hero at this point because he wrecked people every week. Yeah, and he didn't care. Still does SRX he, this summer. Yeah, I was texting him. I was like, I want to do some SRX racing. Hell, screw it. Tell yeah. him get some extra bumpers. Let's go. <laughs> I mean, I've also I've had my fair share of people wrecking people in Xfinity. Most of it unintentional because I have mm-hmm. no idea what the hell I'm doing. It happens. But you know, it's you know, you 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 can't live life in a race car being nice. You'll never get anywhere. I was ruthless in a go-kart. I I was horrible. I I moved people out of my way to win races all the time. In cars, you can't do that. Uh, In formula cars, you can't do that. Or, I mean, if you're Joseph Newgarden going around Texas where he uh, taps Seb, he should still prove that you can chrome horn some people. Um, It was a real interesting incident. If people ever watch Texas this year, um, we'll know what I'm talking about. Um, but yeah, no, I mean, there's, there's my fair share of aggression. I'm sure it came out this year, uh, a little bit more this year than it has in the past years, especially being part-time. Uh, a lot of drivers have had some choice words to say about me with the 500. Um, well, one in particular, I'd say, but I mean, you can't be a race car driver and have a mullet in IndyCar, unfortunately. So, uh, <laughs> I, I have to laugh you know, I'm not going to stop being myself. I think my driving style fits in these Xfinity cars a little bit more. Um, I like being able to be aggressive. And, you know, it's it was definitely a learning experience in 18. Uh, it taught me a lot about myself, taught me a lot about my character. Um, I definitely had some growing to do, which I felt like I've done. And, you know, now we're on to bigger, better things. Last thing I'll ask on that. It's, it's one of the cliche questions, right? But it genuinely seems like that situation, albeit in the moment, sucked made you better and made you a better person, made you a better race car driver, you know, whether you liked it at the time or not, took you on a path that you're just genuinely happier now in terms of where you are geographically, what you're driving, you know, the position you're in, in terms of your personal life. It seems like maybe not a blessing in disguise is the right word, but looking back on it now, that seemed to have been all for the best because it taught you things that you now are able to take with you in your career. So Although it sucked in the moment, and I'm sure it still sucks to talk about now, so sorry for keep bringing it up. No, uh, no, it seems to you're, be one of those things that like helps you long term. You know what I mean? All right, you're 100 correct. I mean, I do kind of find it as a blessing in disguise because yeah. um, it got me out of Europe. Unfortunately, it got me out the hard way because I'm a stubborn person. <laughs> but it it really you know got me out of European racing, and and I I laugh because like you know every now and then you get the offer to go back there and and revisit Europe and F1, and I'm you know, you sometimes have that and everyone's like, you're banned to race in Europe. And that's not really the case. You know, I I had my suspension at one point for a couple of races over, to be honest with you, that suspension was more over the fact that I missed that stewards meeting. Yeah. yeah. Because I had, I had my flights to get back to America to make a funeral. Um, You can't break the rules in Europe though. You, that's the other thing you you're not allowed to like they the fia they say this is how it happens and it happens i mean that's they're they're a controlling power and there's no there's no if ands or buts no gray area uh you know they don't care i reached out to them i sent them emails tried to get in touch with them and their response was you can go f off we don't care 
And you know what, that's, that's upsetting that they act like that. Um, that's on them. That's how they want to run their show. They run their show that way. Yeah. Uh, there's plenty of a talent. Uh, there's plenty talented Americans that try to make it over there and it's just upsetting how they treat us. You know, they don't, we we're so dominant in sports, so dominant in sports. And if they can keep us out of their one sport, they're going to try. And, you know, that's how I feel. I feel like every American that's raced over there will tell you the same thing, um, regardless their financial situation, their talent level or anything, you know, it's just very hard to, for, for us to compete over there. They make it hard on purpose. And I didn't make a mistake over there for eight years at all. And that was the one mistake I made in all that time. And you can see how quickly it got blown up. Yeah. So, you know, it's, it's a shame that they, they treat us like that. But, uh, you know, I, like I said, it was a blessing in disguise. I'm Mm -hmm. way happier that I'm back in the States. I'm way happier doing what I do now. Even if I'm part-time this year, I'm still, you know, I still keep my head up high. I have a smile on my face all the time. And, you know, I'm just blessed to have what I have. Uh, do you think we'll ever see an American in formula one again? I mean, ever maybe, you know, crazy cause it's going to happen eventually, but in, in the short term, you think we'll see one? No, <laughs> I know there's one over there. That's really good. Um, but you just can't, you just can't get into top, top equipment, top team stuff. They just, they kind of blackball you a little bit and, you know, so you can never really win championships or races. So they, like yeah. I said, they just make it hard. I mean, something will have to drastically change, even with Haas, you know, I just don't see them putting in an American. I mean, they have uh, Schumacher mm-hmm. in the car and, you know, in my opinion, it's rightfully deserved. I mean, he's a good driver. He deserves to be there. Uh, the other teammate, <laughs> I wish I could say the same, but has you know, someone has to, somebody's, yeah, somebody's got to pay the bills. Yeah. So and that's kind of how Europe works. You have someone paying the bills and someone there on merit. Yeah. So. All right. Let's talk IndyCar. Let's get to the positive vibes of this part of the pod. And I know we only got um, 20 minutes or so left, so yeah. I want to hit on a lot of things. So let's get into the good vibrations and the good things going on. So as you mentioned, you go over to the IndyCar side, right, with Ray Hall, Letterman, Lanigan. 2019 Indy 500 Rookie of the Year. Finished top 10 there. Uh, you did well that season overall as well, and then you went full-time um, past couple years too. Just the vibe in IndyCar compared to what you experienced in Europe had to be night and day, and that part of, and that probably contributed to part of the reason why you're so much happier now and genuinely in a better headspace. Because IndyCar, the paddock, and even though the results, you know, there's still highs and lows. Overall, you're just happier going and racing in that series. Oh, 100 percent. I mean, my first year in IndyCar, we had uh, like four top fives or something like that. And then the, the Indy 500 rookie of the year, I think. So it's funny. It's like a lot of my success came on the ovals and I don't think a lot of people expected that because I've never done ovals in my career. Yeah. Um, and we had our fair share of success on the street and road courses as well. Uh, and even going into, you know, so we ended up with Dale Coyne for two years, Vassa Sullivan on that, that second part of the, or the second year. Mm-hmm. Um, and we had a lot of success. We had a lot of road course success We we were really competitive. Unfortunately, you know, we were really taken out of the championship, nothing due to anything other than bad pit stops. And unfortunately it kind of became a little bit of a joke in the paddock, which I mean, it, there, there, it was my guys, my crew and my team. So at the end of the day, like 
I was pushing them really hard to really work on it. And, you know, it's, it's, you know, a lot of people love to watch us during the races to see, you know, what would go wrong in this pit stop. I mean, I remember gateway specifically. I mean, we went, we, the car broke in practice. We didn't, we turned two laps in practice before the car broke qualify and jump in that Indy car and just qualify at full tilt is next to impossible. So, and then it was a year that we couldn't pass. So we got up to 10th on strategy, a good strategy call to Jimmy Vassar. Then on the restart, I passed enough cars, <coughs> got us around to fifth place. And all we had to do is make a simple pit stop and not lose a ton of time. And we ended up going from fifth to 17th. And, you know, it was just heartbreaking for everybody in that team because, you know, we worked so hard to get up there and, you know, we worked so hard to put a good car on the track that, you know, it, it really changed the, it really shifted the team. Yeah. Really shifted how everybody operated inside the team. And then, you know, we had a, you know, a whole new pit crew come in the next couple of weeks and it was really hard to deal with because you have all new guys learning a completely new sequence. And, you know, it was just hard to get them back up to being competitive and, uh, you know, we, we did the best with what we could and we ended up not finishing the season as strong as I think we'd hoped to. Uh, we did qualify on the pole in our group. So off pole in mid Ohio in the rain, I think that was the highlight of the year for me right there. I mean, the fourth place at the 500 was really nice. Um, cause we were in contention for the win, just finishing yeah. under caution, uh, was upsetting. Um, and then, you know, uh, we show up in the rain and same thing, mid Ohio in the rain, man, love that track in the rain. Yeah. And we were, we were on pulling our group. The next fastest car was our teammate at 2.7 seconds behind us. So it was definitely a, you know, what felt like a clinic for me. And I was just in my element driving, enjoying, enjoying what I do best. And, uh, you know, I, part of that, you know, performance also got me my deal with, with Ray Hall, I'd like to think for this season, uh, which was nice to get five races with high V. Um, you know, we had a great, we had another great 500, regardless of everything that happened and, you know, the team building the car up again and getting it back to being competitive, uh, and racing around with a broken leg, which wasn't obviously fun, no. but, uh, we, it was, it was a great race for us. I mean, had we had the cautions fall correctly in the first stint, uh, which we didn't, we would have definitely been in contention for a win. Uh, this year, you know, and just because of something really small like that, we, we weren't, um, but we were right there. Um, then we finished up, uh, we went to Detroit once again, fifth, uh, we had a sixth and a ninth, uh, or sixth and a 10th. And to be honest, we should have probably been in contention to win on the second race, but qualifying we were, I was really pushing the car, <laughs> You know, I had the chance to get a pole. Um, I was one corner off of being either in that front row or right there. And I just got on the bump the wrong way and I sent the car into the wall. And, you know, the most impressive thing I've ever seen in my life was watching a team roll out a chassis and build a car in two hours and 15 minutes. It's impressive. No setup, no nothing. We literally put the car together and they, the team eyeballed it and measured awesome. it, it didn't hit a patch. It had, we had no idea. Cause like everybody in racing, you know, I, I guess for fans in particular, like 
before we drive our race cars, like they sit on a flat patch, they sit on a scale. We measure them with fine tools. We make sure everything's perfect to the millimeter. When you put a car together and you just kind of send it, nothing is perfect. No. It's not even close. I mean, the steering wheel was like crooked down the straight, kind of broke funny. It had Dude, you, you got to do. It did all these weird things. And we still finished in the top 10, man. Yeah. And like with, with a car that didn't have a setup, which was impressive to that team because like that just doesn't happen. You know, we were really on the on the edge that whole weekend. And then mid-Ohio was good, another top 10. And then we struggled in Nashville. But, no, we had a solid year in the IndyCar. And um, it was it was definitely nothing for me what felt short of impressive. Um, I loved working with Ray Hall. I loved working with High V. Um, they're a fantastic sponsor, and they're awesome to give me that opportunity. Before we go any further, who's texting you? Good point. <laughs> There's like 10 dings going off. I'm like, what is going it's on? It's my computer. Here? And to be honest with you, I don't know how to mute it. <laughs> Are you on a Mac? Yeah. Do uh go to the top. Do you see like a little nighttime icon? It's like, should be do not disturb. You know, but if you it? don't see it, it doesn't really matter. Don't worry uh, about it. Got it. Yeah. Good point. Sorry about yeah, that. Yeah. You're welcome. So, I'm teaching these. these things. It's, it's my girlfriend's group chat with all of her college friends. I see. I didn't go to college, so I felt left out. So they put me in the group. That's nice of them. Good to have friends around. Like <laughs> kidding. That. No kidding. Right. Yeah. All right. Let's talk NASCAR now. Cause I only have about 10 minutes left with you, but that's yeah. part of the reason why I have you here for this conversation. So you're having all the success in IndyCar. You're doing well, right? Making a name for yourself on that side of things. Why'd you decide to come over to the NASCAR side? Oh man. So I knew I wasn't going to end up in a full-time seat this year. So, you know, I've always had this fascination with running stock car. I've been around this paddock for a really long time. You told Tony uh, Stewart when you were younger that you're going to drive one of his cars. I did. And, you know, I, hopefully I get to hold true to that and yeah, drive for yeah. him at one point in my career over in the stock car side, but no, I started to look into it. Um, it's a new, so I had friends here, but it's a different world. And, uh, I got set, I got linked up with Sam through a mutual friend. Um, you know, and there just this rumor that I had this big sponsor and I just kind of went down here and I was like, dude, I'm hustling to find sponsors. I think I've got like four or five races like set right now. And he's like, okay, that's, you know, it's a little bit different from than what we heard. And we had a dinner and we were like, all right, let's do it. Cause you know, Sam's team is a little bit more of a premier team, I'd say in Xfinity. And I could have taken that same budget elsewhere and probably run a full season or close yeah. to, um, but I would have probably never finished above 30 on a good day. Yeah. And you know, that wasn't my point. My point was to come here, work with a, a good team and try and race for top, top tens and top fives. And, you know, I was talking to Sam he's like, yeah, dude, I mean, if you, if you break the top 20, it's a good day. I'm like, all right. I mean, We'll see what we can do. You've done it a few times. Yeah, we've gotten, to be honest with you, the, uh, I believe the six races we've done, if it wasn't for Homestead, we would have had five top 15s. So Atlanta was a, a little bit of a, a letdown. We did the second Atlanta race. We got lucky. We pulled some sponsorship together as a, as a team, and we blew the shock mount off the car. So we did that whole race with three shocks. And That's the shocking. only reason... 
And the, yeah, so the only reason we didn't finish inside the top 20 is because we had such a hard time getting it off the car so it wouldn't break and fall off on the track that we had to go yeah. two laps down. And we could not get our lap back to get one lap down and get the lucky dog. And we were still quick. I mean, like, I, I am starting to know some of the drivers here and understand the equipment, but, and Josh Berry, I think was in the 31 and we were racing him with three shocks. I mean, this guy's now won two races. He yeah. can drop. It's impressive. So, you know, I was like, shit, man, like I'm, I'm freaking enjoying this. And, you know, me and Josh, we, we haven't met each other. Um, <laughs> I do kind of feel bad for the Phoenix incident. So I'm learning the etiquette with yeah. the track here. Like I said, I've had my fair share of taking people out. Um, with that incident, I just honestly took the preferred line on the inside because I kind of figured that's what you do in normal racing. He lets you know with a double bird. Yeah. What's well, actually funny is people missed it. I flipped them off too because I sure saw it did. coming. Yeah. But my arms are so short that I can't get my hand outside the window net. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> So you can't see me do anything because I can't. I literally can't get my hand outside the window net. I'm First so tiny. Problems, man. But no, that's not someone I'd pick a fight with. He looks like he's got me beat. Yeah, <laughs> I'm about the size of his leg. Yeah, that'll. Happen. So, but no, like it, it's cool because like you know I kind of root for him too because like seeing where he came from and everything yeah. like I kind of understand because I've been in that position and it's cool to see him get a full time opportunity next year. But no, like I said, I I've had my fair share of learning experiences, Las Vegas, dude, I loved Vegas. And I raced, uh, Algaier to the line and ended up beating him for, I don't know, 13th place, which is like nowhere. But for me, that felt like a win. Cause I mean, yeah. you race in, I mean, I'm looking at the picture up on the wall here. I mean, Sam has yeah. it literally framed cause that race for 15 laps of me ripping the wall in Vegas and coming down and then trying to get to the inside and racing a Justin. Cause I've well, known Justin about. for a long time, you know, from karting to the dirt midget stuff. Like, I don't know if he thought it was as fun as I thought it was. Probably not. Like there was one point in time where I pushed him around the, the, the trioval part. And like, he got a little loose, but I slingshot him Talladega night style around two people. <laughs> and he was like, dude, you can't push me in the D oval. And I'm like, yeah, but you passed two cars. Like, <laughs> what's the problem? Yeah, we needed to get around those guys. Yeah. Like, I'm working with you here. And <laughs> yeah, no. So, all right. You don't push people in the trial. Well, I get that. People spend You're learning. Money. Yeah. Well, the biggest thing for me, uh, the biggest, the craziest track that I thought was the most unique was Atlanta. Uh, Tire just wear, because. Baby. Oh my God, dude, the, <laughs> going down the front stretch and someone comes up around the outside, you'll be going like 160. And all of a sudden you'll just get wheel spin in fourth gear and start turning. You're like, what, what, what the hell is going on here? And it's just because the, the side draft pulls you around. And to have that feeling as strong as it is there yeah. on a front stretch, you're just like, what in get the- Get ready for Talladega this weekend. Yeah, what in the actual heck is going on? Yeah. So, oh, dude, I can't wait. I mean, I've got all my sim practice on iRacing, bud. Yeah. <laughs> I know it doesn't run at all like a simulator, but still, it's about oh. the closest thing I can get. Yeah. So, I do have a restrictor plate win, by the way. Do you? I do. In a Margay Ignite around Daytona. Tell me more. So, 
during the winter, these past couple winters, I've done some go-karting in my off season. I've won a couple of races, you know, just coming back running WKA, which yeah. a lot of kids race now. Uh, a lot of, you see the kids that are the NASCAR drivers that have their kids coming up are racing in WKA and there's a restrict it's, it's a speedway race, but it's a restrictor plate race technically in a Margay Ignite. And if you don't know what a Margay Ignite is, it's basically, um, it's like a little Honda engine that sits on a limiter. It has absolutely no horsepower and a full-size go-kart. And it's all momentum racing with the hardest tire you can think of. It's like Fred Flintstone tires. <laughs> and, uh, the guys that put it on, uh, just they i can't thank them enough uh chris and um sean uh or and yeah they just they pay for my you know they pay for me to the go-kart to be there and they pay for my entry fee and all i do is show up and drive like i just get myself to the track and they take care of everything and i enjoy it you know i, I love i love it it's my new favorite go-karting class because there's so many of them. Like, I don't want to race in a class with 10 kids. I want to race in a class where that grid was 130 D. There was 40 something carts in that class, 45, wow. all on a line, running on a limiter at like 72 miles an hour, going down the back bench. And I ended up winning this race on pure luck because I caught a lap car and I pushed it across the line. So you're a winner at Daytona. Congrats. So I have, I have, I actually have a lot of wins at Daytona, just on the go-kart track. Yeah, yeah. And now I have one on the big track. Well, you're a restrictor plate winner at Daytona. Congrats. I am a, I am a restrictor plate winner at Daytona. I do not have a Daytona 500 ring to show for it. Not yet. Uh, maybe one day, yeah. but uh, no, I'm, I'm really excited to be running Talladega. I, I can't thank Sam and, you know, this came together really last minute. So like our sponsors, Hy-Vee and Palermo's Pizza, we're a huge helping hand in this and, you know, it's cool to see them come over from the IndyCar side into the stock car side with me. And, you know, I really like working with these guys and, uh, you know, hopefully I'm more into putting on a show for them. Um, yeah, I want to win this race, but at the same point, you know, I wouldn't mind having a little bit of excitement. If you know what I mean? Absolutely. We love excitement over here on the NASCAR side of things. Well, let's talk about the future. Let's talk about next year for a little bit. We didn't even get into like half the things I wanted to. I mean, you ran the Chili Bowl for goodness sake. That had to be interesting. Um, Trying to run like, it again. I know you are. And like just the change in language from IndyCar and racing in Europe to NASCAR. I feel like that had to be a big change. I want to just real quick. I need to ask this. The first time you strapped in that late model for your test, I think it was a Caraway. That yeah. was your first laps in like a stock car type. I mean, mm -hmm. just real quick, the feelings of strapping in and being like, what did I just get myself into? I have no idea what's about to happen. Dude, I'm not going to lie. It actually felt pretty good. The thing was like planted to the track. It was great to be on the chip going was into the Was it a super? Corners. Yeah, it was a super late. Yeah. I've never driven a stock car. And they That's put what me I'm in saying. a super late around Caraway. Now, if people don't know what Caraway is, you might as well just go to a parking lot and put up some some walls. Yeah. That, I mean, this track You're not was, wrong. This track was as old school as it got, and I really appreciated that. Like that was super cool, just to go yeah. out and run an old school track like that with an old school style car. Yeah. I mean, I had so much fun all day there. I mean, I mean, Kaz Grolix. I went and did it with Fury. Fury. Yeah. Uh, were there and. You know, I kept, you know, they were like, yeah, we're going to put Kaz in to run a couple laps and do a benchmark. And I was like, perfect. He'd go out, run a couple laps. I'd go out, run a couple laps. All right, switch seats. And he's like, what do you mean? I was like, keep going. I was like, dude, like, I need you to keep 
improving so I can keep improving. Yeah. So we literally spent all day just going back and forth. And uh, no, we had a ton of fun. I learned a ton off of Kaz from that. And, you know, that kind of really got me set because after that day, I was like, you know what? I can just jump in this car and go green flag racing in the Xfinity series. And um, that's what we did. You know, I, I had a lot of confidence because of that going into Homestead. Mm-hmm. Uh, the biggest thing for me was get through this two stages and learn because I got two sprint races, which was nice. Um, but no, it was it was an experience and a half. And uh, same thing, you know, is the Chili Bowl. That dirt car is so much more relatable to the Xfinity than it is to anything else. A lot of power. And yeah. Yeah. And I'm trying to run the Chili Bowl again this year. Yeah. And so it's like something that like I'm going to continue to try and do and work with sponsors and to, to get that done. I mean, I just have so much fun at the Chili Bowl because I grew up with grassroots racing. I grew up with yeah. go-kart I never there was grew a dirt up. track by where you grew up too. I know. Yeah, there is. And, uh, there is a little flat track dirt track in mm-hmm. Oakland Valley. I've never run on it. I've only been around it on a dirt bike. Funny enough. It's like one fifth mile, dirt. right? Uh, yeah. It's like, yeah, it's a tiny little one. Yeah. So, but, uh, I never got a chance to race on it in a go-kart or in anything. So, you know, the chili bowl was my first experience in a dirt car. I didn't even, yeah. so the chili bowl was my first laps in a midget in uh 19 like that or in 20 that was my first laps were the five practice laps that you get at the chili bowl man that's how much time i had to learn the track the car and everything that went with it and it was trust me it was hard so the next year he showed up you know i felt a lot better but it just it's so hard to get in the groove there because i felt comfortable with the car i just i have such a hard time adjusting to the track because it's always changing Yep. All good. Yeah, no. So the track's just always changing. And, you know, that was my biggest Achilles heel. If the track was the same, I think I would have been able to do a lot better because, you know, I felt like I was in good equipment. Yeah. But it's just so hard as, as a driver to look at because you look at the dirt. People are like, look at the dirt. I'm like, looks like dirt. <laughs> I don't know. You see that color change? I'm like, yeah, looks a little like darker dirt. dirt. Yeah, darker dirt. They're like, yeah, you go to that dirt. And I'm like, oh, well, what happens when that dirt gets shiny? Oh, yeah, don't go to that dirt. <laughs> so I'm, I'm like, You're like, wait, what? Right. Dirt can get shiny? I know, right? Yeah. I mean, what a learning curve and a half. But I love I love my Chili Bowl family. And I love being there. I love the fans there. Yeah. Um, this year, if I run it, I do plan to bring T-shirts and merchandise because I haven't the last two years. And people keep breaking cool. my bones about it. But this year, I'm going to have stuff. Wonderful. All right. Last question for me, because I know I got to let you run here in a minute. You got a busy day, busy day of prep for Talladega. Talk with Chris Lambert, former guest on Victory Lane as well. Um, I know that you said for next year, looking ahead to 2022, you're open to a full-time Indy car ride on that side of things. You're also open to a full-time Xfinity ride. You're open to more things on the Xfinity side. You mentioned SRX. You'd, you'd take that opportunity if it came your way. I know you are a racer, so you will race whatever, whenever, however, what is your focus for next year? Are you focusing on one specific area to try to secure funding and secure a ride or are you kind of kind of take whatever comes your way? I think so. My biggest focus uh, for next year is knowing that I'm going to try and run the 500 again. So the Indy 500, yep. um, you know, I think I'll definitely get a ride for that uh, just because my track record, I have a fourth, sixth and a seventh. And, mm-hmm. you know, I do think I can win that race. Um 
And then, yeah, I actually have no idea. You know, I was hoping by this time I'd know what I'm fully focused on for this year or next year and uh, no clue. But, you know, to be honest with you, like I'm pretty much leaning towards, uh, you know, the Xfinity at this moment uh, or towards the NASCAR side of things just because the way that the paddock is shaping up in IndyCar. Um, But uh, we'll see. I mean, everything's uh, TBD uh, Mm -hmm. until that happens. I know that you got hooked up with Lauren Rainier through Jimmy Johnson. He's a good guy to have in your corner, albeit on the Chevy side, but he's a good guy to have in your corner if you want to try to secure some stuff for next year. So I think you got some good some good people around you to make that happen. I do have some good people, and I'm really fortunate for that, especially being a, a new face here in uh, NASCAR. Um, new, I'd say. Yeah. Been around as a kid doing something else, but as a new face as a driver, because um, I didn't come up the traditional way, obviously. Mm-hmm into the sport so but i think that makes me different i also think that going into that next gen car it might add some value for me so which would be pretty cool and nascar is doing some more road courses here and there so yep. uh i don't know might not be a bad place to have a home well Santi, you know this has been super fun man i appreciate you giving me so much time on what i'm sure is a busy week for you heading into talladega i gotta have you back on because again i got to like half the stuff i wanted and trish <laughs> told me that your dog, Cleo, a great Dane, is like twice your size. And you've also talked about how short you are. So next time we're going to have to talk about Cleo and maybe have Cleo on too. She's about to outweigh me. That's scary. <laughs> really? Yeah. She's you within bulk 10 up. pounds. Yeah. I try. I try. You say 210 pounds? No, no, no. She's about 10 pounds off of me. Oh, she's, she's Yeah, no, no. She's 110. I'm 120. All right. So she's close. Yeah. She's getting there. Give her an extra meal. She'll probably get there. Yeah, no kidding. Renee wants me to make sure I watch what I feed her. And I'm like, trust me, if she wants to eat, she can eat all she wants. Yeah, yeah, I hear so you. She's athletic. Well, I saw so. Sam walk in the background there. Tell him I said hello. No. Tell Chris I said hello. Thank Trish for me. Best of luck this weekend in Talladega. And I will have some uh, frozen pizza in your honor. You better go get some Palermo's Screaming Sicilian, dude. I'm ki- I will not lie. I take my pizza very seriously. Stuff's phenomenal. Good. So, all right. Perfect. Sponsorship Thanks works, Santino. I'm telling you. You know that. I know. It's it's all about it. It's all Do about they sell it at high V though? That's the question. You what? Do they sell screaming Sicilians oh. at high V? Oh yeah. Okay. Oh yeah. Got to get the crossover, time. you know. Yeah. So I mean, if you're all my Midwestern and uh, and Iowa fans. Yeah. I mean, they better shop at high V, or else I'm going to be disappointed because I'd shop at high V. I mean, this, you have, I think you're contractually obligated to probably not. I, I would be contractually obligated to, yeah. I mean, if they have, I'm trying to get them. I was like, can you please just put one in Dallas? Like, please, please. just put one in Dallas. You I don't mean, ask for much. No, they're so nice, dude. They got sushi, sushi restaurants in there. They make yeah. all their own, all, all their homemade foods. Like I've been to Iowa. I've been to a high V. Yeah. I mean, they've got like Starbucks inside them and everything. I mean, like, it's like a fancy freaking grocery store. Yeah. I'm like, shit, why isn't this over here? <laughs> That's right. a great place to end it, man. I, I want I'd some much sushi. Shop here. I want some sushi. I want some pizza. I want a trip to High V. I, I want it all. And I want to keep talking to you, but I got to let you go. So uh, it's been fun, it. man. I appreciate your time so much. Thank you, Dave. I appreciate it. Take care, man. And we're back. Big thank you to Santino for giving me so much time on a busy week. Obviously, as you guys heard, he was talking Talladega, so this was recorded pre-Talladega. 
but I, I found it really interesting what he was talking about in terms of getting to learn super speedway racing, learning NASCAR racing in general and how to use the bumpers, how to use the fenders, and also where his focus may be for next year, whether that be securing a full-time route on the Xfinity Series side, still looking at IndyCar, but regardless, I think Santino's happy with where he's at right now, and maybe he can make a permanent home in the NASCAR ranks. So again, thank you to Santino so much. Thank you to Trish Westfall, my very good friend, also fellow DMVer. Love you, Trish, for helping coordinate the conversation. It was great as always working with you guys and looking forward to doing it again soon. Get some more Sam Hunt racing people on the pod. Let's briefly preview the Charlotte Motor Speedway Roval this weekend. It's going to be brief because I'm not going to be able to watch the race this weekend. I mentioned at the top of the show, going to be out west in an RV for a little bit. Going to be chilling out west, seeing some national parks. It's going to be fun. Going to miss the Roval and also going to miss all the other companion races in the next week or so, but still follow my page. We will still have a podcast dropping next week. Haven't decided who we're going to have, but I do have some episodes in the can, so stay tuned. We will still have a podcast, but anyways, I will not be watching the Roval this weekend. I'll be following along as much as I can. Storylines, Chase Elliott, and that's about it, right? I mean, he's going for three in a row, two-time and defending champion of this race, Ryan Blaney won the first inaugural Roval race. He's going for his second. And below the cut line, as this is the cutoff race for the round of 12, as the playoff field will shrink from 12 to 8, Kevin Harvick, William Byron, Alex Bowman, Christopher Bell. Are any of those four drivers going to be able to vault themselves above the cut line? Let's briefly run through them. Kevin Harvick, not a great road course racer, not a fan of this layout. Then again, he's Kevin Harvick, so can you really ever count him out? I say no. William Byron is good on road courses, has enjoyed racing at the Roval, but it's a matter of if he can do it on this specific day and if the people in front of him can have a little bit of trouble, so he needs a little bit of luck. Alex Bowman needs a lot of luck because he's further back than Byron. He's also run well at road courses and on the Roval in past years, so look at that 48 this weekend, see if he can get some stage points and maybe even contend for the win. And Christopher Bell's in a winner-go-home scenario, but... You guys remember earlier this year, he won at the Daytona Road Course, so nothing is out of the question. Another thing to watch, and we talked about this on the Front Stretch podcast, Kyle Busch, for as good as he is in general on road courses, he's never finished better than 30th at the Roval. He has not cracked the top 30 in his career at this racetrack. That's got to change, right? You would assume so. So watch that 18 car. If he can stay out of trouble, get a solid top 10, top 15 day, more than likely, he will advance to the round of eight. The Bank of America Roval 400 this Sunday, 2 p.m. on Big NBC. Look, that's of the week. Cue that funky music, white boy. Going back to last week, we had some lug nuts to touch on. Built Bar has been named the official protein bar of NASCAR. I feel like I got to try one now. Chris Wright is going to run for JD Motorsports this weekend at the Roval. Will Rogers will do the same for Sam Hunt Racing. He's run a couple races this year already for the organization. Grant Enfinger was announced as the full-time driver of the 23 truck for GMS Racing for next year and 2023 with sponsorship from Champion. Kind of saw that one coming, but good to be officially out in the open. Joey Han is going to make his Cup Series debut for Rick Ware Racing, but it's going to be a Stuart Haas Racing prepared car this weekend at the Roval. Austin Hill will not be back to a Tory Racing Enterprises next season. He's eyeing a move up to the Xfinity Series. He mentioned that 
earlier this week at Talladega. Michael Annette is retiring from full-time competition after this season. He's been nursing that leg injury, and he said that he'd be able to race but not be able to walk the next day, and uh, that's not healthy. So hopefully Michael can finish out this year strong, maintain his health, and go out on a good note. But congrats to Michael for, for a fun career in NASCAR. Eddie Traconis has been suspended by NASCAR for a behavioral violation. Not sure what it was for. People are speculating because he is married to Jennifer Jo Cobb, who kind of went in bonsai to that wreck in the truck series at an insanely fast speed. So maybe it had something to do with that. We don't really know. Not going to speculate too much there. Ty Dillon is going to be in an hour motorsports car at the Charlotte Roval this weekend as well. And I think that he may be announced to have a full-time cup ride sometime soon with a new team for next year. So keep your eyes and ears to the grindstone for when that announcement may come to fruition. Scott Graves and Luke Lambert are swapping positions at Roush Fenway Racing. Jack Roush had the idea to swap those crew chiefs for Chris Buescher and Ryan Newman for the last few races of the season. So Lambert and Newman are reunited, and Graves will crew chief for Chris Buescher. One Talladega penalty, Jeff Mendering, Brandon Jones's crew chief, who finished second in the Xfinity Series race at Talladega, was fined $5,000 for a loose lug nut. And unfortunately, ending lug nuts of the week on a sad note. You guys remember John West Townley? Remember the Zaxby's car, the chicken man? People gave him a lot of crap over the years. Really, really sad, tragic story. He passed away over the weekend at 31 years old. The news broke on Sunday as Talladega was in a rain delay and seems like it was domestic violence related. He may have entered um, his former girlfriend's house with an ax or a hatchet and he was shot to death. So really unfortunate circumstances there, but definitely thinking of the Townley family and friends at this time. That'll wrap things up for episode 128 of Victory Lane 2.0. I shouldn't have said the John West Townley thing for the end. I like to end on a good note, so sorry about that. But hey, I hope you guys enjoyed our chat with Santino Ferrucci. I hope you enjoyed Dad's way back segment of the week. I saw that there was one listener on Twitter this week uh, who was really looking forward to the way back segment this week. I'm going to try to find it. Uh, who was it? I'm looking on Twitter right now. Ashley Tompkins. Ashley, thank you for listening. And Dad, if you're listening, she said, I'm looking forward to your dad's way back part of the show tomorrow. I'm thinking Davey Allison. Well, Ashley, you were correct. So we'll see who he does for next week. Let me just say, if it is not Kevin Harvick, he will not be allowed on my show ever again. Ever again. So it better be a Kevin Harvick tribute next week for episode 129. If you like what you heard here today, do me a favor, leave a rating and a review, subscribe to the podcast. We're available on iTunes, Spotify, Google, SoundCloud, wherever you get your podcasts. We should be available there for your consumption. And if we're not, drop me a line and I'll try to rectify that issue for you. Until next time, stay safe, get outside, get vaccinated. I will not lose too much money in Vegas for the next couple days that I'm here. And I'll catch you on the flip side. <laughs>